You're listening to a podcast by Redeemer Bible Church. Come visit us Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or visit our website at RedeemerFortBend.org for more information. Thanks and enjoy. scripture reading this morning comes from uh, Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 18, which will also be the text for today's message. And if you would, please stand for the reading of the Word of God, if you're able. Colossians 1, 15 to 18, if you're using a pew Bible, it's on page 924. Verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him All things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Please be seated. Our message this morning is titled, The Highest Rank, and you'll see why, I think, very soon. I remember the summer of 1977 when my parents took me to see a new movie called Star Wars. All the way home from the theater, I tried to relive the movie's special effects, which were absolutely awesome to me at the time. And I've loved science fiction ever since, though I have to say I'm I'm more of a Star Trek fan than, than a Star Wars fan now. Maybe that's why the red shirt. You know, know the, uh, the original series will know what I'm talking about. <laughs> well, I, I really think, though, as a culture, we uh, <clears throat> have lost our sense of what really counts, though, as awesome, haven't we? We have no awe of God, and we revere instead special effects and visual tricks. Nowadays, of course, the special effects of that first Star Wars film, if you watch it again, they look kind of amateurish now. Uh, and dated. None of that is CGI, though. I mean, it's all analog. It's, it's fantastic. So there's something to that. It's kind of like vinyl records, I suppose. Well, you know, that's true of anything man-made. It gets old and faded and eventually disintegrates. You know, later that same summer that Star Wars made its debut, NASA launched the Voyager 1 and Voyager 2 spacecraft. Don't have anyone in here who worked on those, do we? Uh, <clears throat> you never know. Most of my students, uh, uh, when I first started teaching at DTS Houston here, were NASA folks. I, they were either in NASA or uh, oil and gas, it seemed. Uh, that's changed now. But You know, those Voyager 1 and Voyager 2 spacecraft uh, uh, were launched that very same summer, and it's a noteworthy human achievement that those space probes are still hurtling through space after 45 years. 
But unlike the fictitious starships in Star Wars that can travel many times the speed of light, these Voyager spacecraft have only in the last five to 10 years made it to the interstellar space on the edges of our solar system. After four decades of travel, they are only 1,280 light minutes from Earth. That's about as the same as going from here to the sun and back 80 times. By way of comparison, Alpha Centauri, the closest star to our own sun, is 4.2 light years away. Maybe the Voyagers aren't hurtling after all. At this rate, it will take more than 17,000 years just to travel one light year. And sadly, it may be as soon as two years from now that the Voyagers won't have power enough to phone home anymore. The most impressive human achievements turn out to be just more bits of space junk. You know, Paul shows us in this passage that Jesus is the only one worthy of our admiration. Jesus made the universe so vast to remind us how great he is. Our subject today is Jesus' greatness because he's the only one who can qualify us to be part of God's plan. We heard last week at the end of Daniel's talk, and thank you, Daniel, uh, uh, when I arrived at... uh, uh, at the church and saw my name in the, in the bulletin, I, I remembered what my professor, uh, Howard Hendricks, said one of the first days in class. He said, this is Dallas Theological Seminary. You may be asked to preach, pray, or die on a moment's notice. And I thought, well, it's come true now. Uh, then Daniel got up and gave the talk. Thank you. But at the end of Daniel's talk, we heard Colossians 1, 12 to 14. He says, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You know, notice, God doesn't even dignify Satan's rule with the word kingdom here. Jesus refers to Satan as the ruler of this world in John 12, 31, but not as a king. Satan's rule is a rebellion against legitimate authority. His rulership of the world is built on lies. So in the real world, the rebellion, not like Star Wars, the rebellion is the evil and the emperor is the good guy. When God works the miracle of salvation in our lives, he forgives us our sin, redeems us from the bondage we were in under Satan's world, In other words, he frees us from that, and he transfers us to a new authority. He qualifies us to be part of his kingdom. He has brought us new life, and he has brought us to a new way of life. No longer do we get our marching orders from the world. We must instead go to the king of God's kingdom to have our mind and understanding renewed in every way. And God's right to have his will be done on earth is called sovereignty. Now, there are two aspects to to sovereignty. Number one, Jesus' right to rule, that is, the fact that he's the legitimate ruler. And number two, Jesus' power to carry out his will. In world news, uh, we sometimes hear of countries where the legitimate government is overrun 
by armed thugs or perhaps by the military. In such cases, the government has the right to rule, but not the power to carry out its wishes. On the other hand, the rebels have no right to rule, but use power and deception to enforce their demands. This deception is what Satan effectively carries out in our world. God permits Satan to operate in this world right now, but one day he will crush this rebellion once for all. He doesn't need a death star to do it either. Jesus, on the other hand, has both the right and the power to rule. This passage, Colossians 1, 15 to 18, shows us how vastly superior is uh, that Jesus is to everything and everyone else in the universe, and so deserves our worship. Likewise, nothing else deserves to be on the throne in our lives. So let's consider Christ's qualifications to be the king of the universe. Now, can you imagine if Jesus had a resume, what that would look like, uh, his profile on LinkedIn or something like that? Uh, here's a bit of what that might say. Relevant experience, creator of the universe, call into existence all elements, including those below the subatomic level, manage their interactions, keep them in existence, sustain all matter, antimatter, dark matter, and energy. Keep physicists trying to figure out how it all works. Well, uh, this passage will show us that Jesus is so glorious, so marvelous, so overwhelmingly powerful that those who know him must not fear, worship, or glorify anything else in the universe. So we're going to structure our message today uh, in five points from the passage. So if Jesus had a resume, these would be the headings. Okay, here they are. Image of God, firstborn over all creation, eternally preexistent, holding all things together, and firstborn from the dead. I know that's five points, but uh, uh, my colleagues who teach preaching aren't in the room. So five points will be fine. You see, we can tell that Jesus is impressively qualified to qualify us for participation in his kingdom. Let's start with the image of God. If you want to see a picture of God, look at Jesus Christ. In the next sermon, in verses 19 through 23, uh, which I'm on the hook for too, by the way, that's, which is good, uh, <clears throat> we're going we're gonna to take up how Jesus is both God and man at the same time. So we're going we're gonna to leave a lot of that discussion for verses 19 through 23. So for the time being, the emphasis here is on the deity of Jesus Christ. But just understand there's another part to this. Let's take a look at verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now, this passage affirms something awesome. Jesus Christ is God's image. Now, we're created, we're created in God's image, you and I, but that's not what Paul means about Jesus Christ. Jesus is the image of God in the world so that he can be seen appreciated, received, and worshipped. See, the word translated image is the Greek word ekon, the root of our word icon. You've heard that word, perhaps. And there are many images that survive from the ancient Greco-Roman world, like statues and coins. 
the image, the ekon, struck on a coin, for instance, showed the ruler in whose name the coin was minted. And that comes up in Matthew 22, for instance, Matthew 22, 20, uh, where uh, Jesus says, well, show me a denarius. Whose, whose image is on this coin? This is the word ekon. The writer of Hebrews, likewise, expresses the concept of Jesus being the image of God like this. Hebrews 1.3 says, He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. The word Paul uses in Colossians 1.15, image, and the one, uh, w- the one word translated exact imprint in Hebrews 1.3 are two different Greek terms, they're, so they aren't the same Greek term, but they both express the essence of Jesus' character. They describe who he is. Paul's point is that Jesus, God's Son, the visible member of the Trinity, is accessible and knowable to us. We have a privilege that those in the Old Testament did not enjoy. The Gospel of John tells us that there is a way to see God, and it's by looking at Jesus. John 1.18, the end of the prologue to the Gospel of John, says, no one has ever seen God. Absolute statement. But then he also goes to say, the only God, meaning Jesus, who is at the Father's side, he, Jesus, he has made him, God the Father, known. He has made him known. So as the image of God, Jesus is God, meaning that he has all of God's attributes. Among them, his sovereignty, which seems to be emphasized here. As human beings, we don't have the essence of God. Jesus, on the other hand, has the right to rule creation and the power, the omnipotence, to exercise that right. So we've talked about Jesus as the image of God. Let's talk about the next heading in Jesus' resume, which is firstborn over all creation. Now let's notice the wording of the passage. He, meaning Jesus, now uh, verse 15, he is pointing back to uh, the beloved son in verse 14, and in verse, uh, sorry, verse 13, and in verse 14, in whom, that's that same part of speech. So Paul is just chaining more things about Jesus on here. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now, Paul's saying two things about Jesus. Number one, that he is the image of the invisible God, and number two, that he is the firstborn of all creation. Now, he does this without any intervening words. Now, this is a signal in Greek grammar to take these two designations as interchangeable. So, Being the firstborn of all creation should be understood to say that Jesus is the image of God, that Jesus is God. So now we've got to unpack this a little bit more because there's a lot of misunderstanding surrounding especially the term firstborn of all creation. Now, in in a family in Jesus' day and in biblical times, uh, even going back into the Genesis narratives, the firstborn son had a particular responsibility in leading the family. The firstborn son would ordinarily receive the largest share of the inheritance. And that idea is so important that many of the surprising twists of biblical narratives uh, uh, sur- uh, surround this custom. They, uh, they kind of revolve around this custom. For instance, Esau selling his birthright to Jacob. Or Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, losing his birthright because of his sin. 
So that's in Genesis 25 and Genesis 49 if you're, if you're interested in following that up. So the, the word firstborn refers to Jesus' position of importance and authority. Part of the problem here, too, is that the word of in the phrase firstborn of all creation is ambiguous in English. It does not mean of in the sense of first of many creatures. Rather, the phrase firstborn of all creation is like the phrase king of Israel. Okay, with me here, king of Israel. King is an authority term. Israel is the place over which the king of Israel rules, right? Okay. So, firstborn is the authority term, and all creation is the thing over which he reigns. So, firstborn of all creation is what he rules over. Now, if you have the NIV or the Net Bible, uh, you'll see your translation reads, firstborn over all creation which I think is, a, is a, a, a much better translation because that brings out that meaning without the ambiguity the of. Thus, Jesus holds the unique position of being an authority over all creation. Now, we should take a moment just to address a heresy that uh, you'll pro- you may have encountered. Uh, the phrase firstborn of all creation does not mean, of course, that God created Jesus. Now, the Jehovah's Witnesses of the present day claim this error about Jesus. Now, the view itself actually originated in the late 3rd and early 4th century with a teacher named Arius. He died in 336 AD. He claimed that Jesus Christ was a created being. And he claimed that firstborn meant that Jesus was the first in a series of creatures God created. Now, his view gained traction for a few decades, but the churches of the 4th century finally denounced Arius' view of Jesus. In our time, the Jehovah's Witnesses have taken up that heretical doctrine, and they make the same claims that Arius did about Jesus Christ being a creation of God. Interestingly enough, just about every heresy and cult that you will encounter in the world today has some problem with their doctrine of who Jesus Christ is. It all revolves around who Jesus is. And so if you don't get this right about Jesus, you, uh, you end up in a place like the various cults and, and heresies around today. There's nothing new, though, under the sun. To counter this claim, you don't really need a lot of theological sophistication. Uh, you don't even need to know Greek. You just... Turn to the next verse. It says, For by him all things were created. Uh, Of course, other passages refute this claim too. Uh, For instance, John 1, 3. All things were made through him. How many? All. All of them. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Or 1 Corinthians 8, 6. Yet for us there is one God, the Father from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. That's putting Jesus on the same level as God, isn't it? So let's look back at our passage. Verse 16. Notice it begins with the word for. For by, all, for by him all things were created. The reason Jesus holds the title of authority 
firstborn over all creation is that he created all things. Now, Paul specifies what all things entails. Look at this. For, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. These words express the scope of Jesus' sovereign authority. The phrase in heaven and on earth, of course, obviously means everywhere. This is the way you talk about the entire universe. You talk about heaven and earth and sometimes you even say under the earth. And when we look at what God has created, we're amazed. Heaven and earth testify to God's greatness, as the psalmist says that we read. Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Of course, visible and invisible includes everything, too. But there's something very striking about His creation as visible and invisible. Now, hang in here with me. This is, this is a really interesting insight here uh, that Paul gives us. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. In Hebrews 11, uh, the things not seen are the promises that believers like Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, and others were waiting for and even died waiting faithfully for the fulfillment of those promises. Now, why were these things, things not seen? These promises were not seen because they had not yet been made manifest in history. You see, doubts are overcome by faith in Jesus Christ as creator. These invisible things that Jesus created and creates are not just stuff, they are events as well. Jesus created the universe, and he goes on creating events. His faithfulness keeps everything working as it does. The promises are real, but they haven't happened yet. Jesus is still creating events that happen now and events that happen as promised. God wants us to trust him so that this future reality is more real to us than the present that we can see with our eyes. And that trust is the essence of hope that we said was one of the virtues that empowers us to, to glorify God. Jesus, thus, is in control of the present and the actual future. You can't even imagine a future, you know, whatever you can make up, God, he's in control of it. How often have you or I worried about something that we were afraid might happen and it never did? And we'll probably never know how many times Jesus has rescued us from some unseen danger. You know, why did that light turn red early? Why am I stuck in this traffic? I don't know. Maybe, maybe it could be God is protecting you from something. <clears throat> our worries are overcome by our faith in Jesus as creator. Here's a thought that God wants us to think when we worry. Think about how great our God is and how good he is. Jesus is the one who chooses what really happens. That's what absolute sovereignty entails. And that includes his rulership over the rebel forces that are constantly at work to influence events on earth. We will constantly face evil and calamity in the world. We know that he has redeemed us, meaning he's given, given meaning to our lives and his purpose. 
He's redeemed us from this world's control and that a good and faithful God is working all things together to rescue us and in so doing, qualify us to glorify his son. Now, let's continue with verse 16. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Listen to what he adds now. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. There's a special focus in Paul's detailed specification of all things that deserves attention. The mention of thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities tells us there's more to the universe than we can imagine. Now, there are several other places in in Paul's writings where rulers and authorities, those two terms, appear together. And in their context, it's very clear that they refer to angelic beings and specifically to fallen angels, demons. Now, let's just take one of those as an example. You probably know, you've probably heard this text. It's a famous one. Ephesians 6.12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, that's human beings, so people aren't the problem, Uh, not in our struggle here. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So because Jesus created these thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities, we do not need to be afraid of these forces. Faith in Jesus as creator rescues us from fear. We have a special relationship with the creator of all angels, both good and fallen, and we must not fear them. In fact, in this very letter, in Colossians 2.15, we find at the cross... He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. The Old Testament and the New Testament consistently tell us that human history is being steered by fallen angels through their influence on the human authorities that govern the human world. The movers and the shakers, the powerful people, the newsmakers... In the book of Daniel, the angel Gabriel speaks of opposition from angelic powers called the Prince of Persia, Daniel 10, verse 13, or the Prince of Greece, Daniel 10, verse 20. So the rulers and authorities in Colossians are supernatural powers that influence human rulers. God allows these powers to shape history in exactly the way he wants. The demons mean what they do for evil. God means it for good. I'm borrowing that from Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, when Joseph says to uh, to his uh, brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Same story in the way uh, things operate in in the spiritual world. See, our focus in Colossians 1 is the greatness of Jesus. All things were created through him and for him. He created you and me for himself, to worship him. He not only created these demonic forces, he triumphed triumphed over them too. The Apostle John writes in 1 John 4, 4, Little children, it's a nice term of endearment, little children, you are from God and you have overcome them, meaning the, the evil angels. For he who is in you, that's Jesus, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. It's the devil. 
If you know Jesus Christ by faith, you have a relationship with the very creator of the universe. He is the absolute ruler of the largest and smallest objects. He is the sovereign over things and events that don't even exist yet. Worship him. Don't worship anything else. See Jesus' ultimate worthiness. No one and nothing else is worthy of your worship. Notice the end of verse 16 says, all things were created through him and for him. The truth is here that all creation, including us believers and including those powers running the world's governments, were created and continue to exist for him to glorify and praise him. Paul's uh, extended doxology at the end of Romans 11 reminds us of this awesome truth. Listen to what Paul says at the end of Romans 9 through through 11. Romans 11, 33 through 36. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. And Paul has to say at the end of that, amen. (laughs) In Jesus, the creator of all things, we find the purpose of creation as well as our purpose, to praise him. Now we've seen that the firstborn over all creation means that Jesus is the absolute authority because he created everything and that he did so for his own glory. Now we can see another aspect of his rulership is his preexistence. So we've seen him as the image of God, the firstborn over all creation, and now the next heading in Jesus' resume is that he is eternally preexistent. Verse 17, you thought I'd never get out of verse 16, did you? Verse 17, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. The Gospel of John says something very similar to this. John 1, verses 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So if everything was made through Jesus, then he had to exist before everything. It's simple, uh, simple logic, isn't it? Everything has a cause. Ultimately, Jesus is the cause. So that also means that Jesus is God. Jesus himself affirmed this truth. To come before someone or something also equals superiority. John 8, 58, Jesus says this to his opponents in, in uh, well, I, we could call it dialogue, but perhaps dispute would be better. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. I am is the name of the God of Israel as revealed to Moses in Exodus 3.14. It's unmistakable. Jesus is the God of Israel who entered history as a human being to take personal command of God's plan and purpose for humanity. So when Jesus says he is before Abraham... He means he is more important than Abraham, too. Now, that had special meaning for his opponents, especially for Jewish people, since folks like Abraham and Moses were held up as special heroes. For Jesus to say, before Abraham, 
was, I am, Abraham rejoiced to see my day, uh, makes him a more important hero than any hero you could possibly imagine. No hero in the Bible, no hero you can think of. All of them uh, pale uh, in comparison to who Jesus is. So we've seen the image of God. We've seen firstborn over all creation. We've just seen that he's eternally preexistent. And now the next heading in Jesus' resume is holding all things together. Not only does Jesus have the right to rule, he has the power to carry out his will. He has the right to use his power in ruling. He says, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Jesus holds all things together. The author of Hebrews affirms this very idea. We've, uh, I've referred to this text before, Hebrews 1.3. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe. That's the words, the universe, are a translation of all things, by the word of his power. He, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Isn't that awesome? You know the very guy who's holding this whole, this whole thing together? You know, much of what we take for granted, the laws of gravity, the laws of thermodynamics, planets, stars, our bodies, all of this and more is being kept in existence by Jesus. He spoke it and it existed. He speaks and all of it continues to work in harmony. One of the things we take for granted is, for instance, how the earth keeps spinning, just the way Jesus wants it to. That's one of the things I thought, what do we take for granted? Well, the earth keeps spinning. So I did a search uh, on the internet for what would happen if the earth stopped spinning? That was my, my, uh, my query. And I got some interesting answers. And I, I, I got uh, an article from astronomy.com. You'd think they'd be an authority on this. So let me quote, quote, if the earth stopped spinning all at once, it would be enormously catastrophic for much of the planet's surface. Much? Probably all of it. Uh, Okay. Uh, Continuing the quote, though we don't feel it, we're, we're all moving along with the planet as it rotates. At the equator, this works out to about a thousand miles per hour. Stop the planet suddenly and everything sitting on top of it would go flying eastward. Imagine people, houses, trees, boulders, and more being launched sideways at hundreds of miles an hour. In the aftermath, high-speed winds still rotating nearly as fast as the planet would scour the surface clean, end quote. Wow. What an action movie that would make. The special effects would get our attention, I'm sure. The article goes on to say that the magnetic field that shields the Earth from harmful radiation would disappear. Uh, So uh, I suppose anyone left would get skin cancer right away. Uh, But day would last half the year, the article goes on to say, as would the night. But as the author notes quite strangely, there would be some very long sunsets. Uh, I could add, even though we won't be around to appreciate them. Well, curiously, this article concludes, quote, though our planet's rotation is slowing down ever so slightly, a day gets about 1.7 milliseconds longer every century, our planet should never stop spinning completely. That's something to be thankful for, end quote. 
I'll say. It's odd that the author should end with this note of thanksgiving, isn't it? He does not indicate to whom he is thankful. He also seems to assume, without any basis for doing so, that things will continue just as they are now and always have. But if he were to pause and reflect deeply, he would realize the extent of thanksgiving that is due to Jesus Christ. Wouldn't he? Wouldn't you and I? Jesus not only keeps the earth spinning, he also holds everything else in existence. So keeping the earth spinning is child's play compared to like, keeping matter in existence. Jesus is constantly choosing to maintain the existence of all the little subatomic particles that make up the matter and energy of the universe. We humans have come to put a lot of confidence in science. And we enjoy some marvelous things that have been accomplished by the patient application of scientific method to problems we face. Now, have you ever noticed something interesting about movies? That science fiction and fantasy have, this, have similarities. Uh, now, one difference between them is the source of the magic, I think. In science fiction, the magic is technology. And in fantasy, well, magic is, well, just magic. But we're amazed by the magic of science in our everyday lives. Electricity, for instance, harnessed in the right way, has made possible all sorts of conveniences and life-saving breakthroughs, including air conditioning, which seems to be working today, thank the Lord for electricity and, uh, and Jesus allowing thermodynamics to work as they do, right? We can scarcely do anything now without electricity. But for all of our advances, we are still really, you know, pardon the pun, but we're still really powerless. Scientific discoveries can prolong our lives, but they can't keep us from dying. And in reality, science has not created one thing. Science can't even enforce any of the laws that it observes. Science, whose method consists of observation, experimentation, the formulation of hypotheses, and interpretation of data, really amounts to the observation of the faithfulness of Jesus Christ in sustaining the universe. Science is a good thing. But all it can do is observe Jesus Christ at work, even if they don't recognize that it's Jesus who's at work. So we come now uh, to, the, to the last of the headings here, firstborn from the dead. We've seen image of God, firstborn over all creation, eternally preexistent, holding all things together, and now we come to firstborn from the dead. Jesus' sovereign power over everything means that he is not bound by any of the natural laws that science observes. He created those laws. And even death has no power over him. We know that Jesus in his glory has the right to rule, but that he also has the power to carry out his will. And we take great confidence that Jesus is using all his power to fulfill God's promises, especially that he'll raise us believers from the dead. Look at Colossians 1.18. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Now, remember that Paul is writing to safeguard the Colossians from falling prey to false teaching that will get exposed in chapter 2. Paul wants the Colossians to know Jesus and his greatness. 
He wants them to avoid seeking their own greatness through religious experiences that dishonor God and lead people astray. Now, so far, Paul has shown Jesus' greatness by exploring his relationship to creation as a whole. But when he comes to verse 18, he focuses on the special relationship between Christ and the church. This is exactly where our sense of amazement should explode. He is saying, believer, you need to impress neither angels nor people. You already have a relationship with the creator of the universe and the head of the church. So Jesus' sovereignty over the church is expressed by the word head. You see, he is the head of the body. The metaphor of head and body make clear the closeness of this relationship. And it's personal and uh, a tender relationship, too. Paul puts it like this in Ephesians when he's talking about the relationship between uh, married people as well. But Ephesians 5.29 says, For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. So Jesus' sovereignty over the church isn't mechanical. It's an expression of his love for the church. And this relationship protects us from outside attacks. We belong only to the head of the body, Jesus Christ. It would be treason against Jesus the King to follow anyone or any, anything else than him. So continuing in verse 18, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. The word beginning is the same word as in the expression in the beginning, like Genesis chapter 1. Paul has already said a lot about Jesus being the creator and present at the beginning. But here, Paul is talking about the beginning of the church. See, in verse 15, we saw that Paul was using firstborn of all creation and uh, the image of the invisible God interchangeably. In our verse, verse 18, he's doing the same thing. Firstborn from the dead is the equivalent of beginning of the church. Jesus rose from the dead as the victor over it. And God began his plan for the church in Jesus by raising him from the dead, vindicating his ministry, vindicating Jesus in every way. So God had a purpose then in raising Jesus from the dead uh, and in making him the head of the church. Notice uh, again verse 18. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. You see that little word, that? That in everything he might be preeminent. That tells us that this is God's purpose. God's purpose in doing what he did, making Jesus the head of the church, was to make him preeminent in everything. When God resurrected Jesus, he did so to make him the most important person in the universe, to receive the highest rank. Paul puts it like this in another of his prison epistles. This is Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. Uh, because of what Jesus did on the cross, he became obedient to the point of death, even, the, uh, the, uh, <clears throat> even to the point of death on a cross, a cross kind of death. Look at what he says in verse 9. Philippians 2, 9 says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. That's a highest rank. Perhaps it's, it's the name that we find in Revelation, King of kings and Lord of lords. 
so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth. And here it is, under the earth. So Paul's going over, he's going over the top when he goes under the earth, right? He's adding more to this. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, in raising Jesus from the dead, God vindicated his life, ministry, and sacrificial death so that the world would understand how great Jesus is. Jesus had spoken nothing but the truth about God, and his resurrection was God's proof that it was so. The key thing about Jesus' greatness for us is that he is the greatest and most important person in the church. His special relationship to us as our head becomes our focus. We look to him rather than to what he has created. And we live our lives to show the world how he has created new life in us. You know, God really has made us uh, uh, with a built-in sense of awe. And I think the fact that we look for awesome things in space telescopes or in science fiction or fantasy or sports is evidence of that fact. We, we want to see greatness. See, our problem, though, as human beings is that sometimes we're awestruck by creation without appreciating the creator. Or we're impressed by things or people that we regard as powerful in the world. Paul is telling us to look at the creator of all things and hold him in awe, to be impressed by him. See, Paul is pointing beyond the creation to the creator and asking us to see Jesus, its sovereign ruler. The final scenes of the history of the universe as we know it are coming soon. And no movie special effects would ever be able to do them justice. Jesus, the only qualified emperor, will return to this planet to be enthroned as a ruler, as the ruler of a worldwide empire. It's called the kingdom of God. He will fully and finally redeem those he has qualified to share an inheritance in his kingdom. He will then be recognized by all creation as foremost in everything. And our destiny at that time will depend on what we have done in this life, whether we have recognized Jesus' superiority now, and whether we lived in a way that honored him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for revealing yourself through your son, Jesus, without whom we would know nothing about you, nor would we see light nor the light of your revelation. Thank you that Jesus is the ruler over the universe. We trust him to do all your purpose for him as creation's ultimate authority. Open our eyes to see this beautiful glory in your son. Fill us with such a love for you that we will not be led astray to find satisfaction in anything else or anyone else but you. Give us the discernment that will guard our hearts from the lies that uh, Paul will show us in Colossians 2. Please show us how to bring every part of our lives